Good morning. Ooh. <laughs> so if we haven't met, oh, you may be seated. <laughs> Is that my job? <laughs> uh, if we haven't met each other before, my name is Alex Kirk, and uh, I am not a pastor, but I am the son of a pastor, and I currently serve in a ministry training pastors in the developing world. So it's really uh, my honor and delight to be here with you guys. I'm a member of Restoration, and it's just so fun uh, to get to share with God, God's Word with you this morning. Will you pray with me again uh, just for our time in the Scripture together? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word to challenge us and to encourage us. I pray this morning that if there are any here who are too comfortable, that you would disrupt us. And if there are any here who are disrupted, that you would comfort us. And I pray most of all that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be pleasing to you, our God. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there's this crazy psychological experiment that was conducted in the 1950s, and it was called the Ash Conformity Experiment. And in this experiment, they had eight test subjects, and they brought them into a room together and sat them at a conference table, and they showed them just a series of lines that were different lengths. And all the subjects were supposed to do was just match up the lines with other lines that were the same length. And there was no optical illusion. There was nothing fishy. It was designed, in fact, so that nearly 100% of the people could easily see the right answer, like, every time. But here's the twist. Seven of the eight participants were actors. And so those seven actors were instructed to confidently respond with what was clearly the wrong answer. And then they put the real test subject last. Uh, now, Almost most of the time, the real test subjects still responded with the correct answer, but fully one-third of the time, the test subject went along with the group despite the fact that they knew it was the wrong answer. And they repeated the experiment with each test subject maybe 10 or 12 times. In over 12 iterations, 70% of people went with the group giving what they knew to be the wrong answer at least once. Isn't that just our human nature? Aren't we so prone to, to conform to the world around us, to blend in, to compromise ourselves? If you've ever been there, if you've ever been in that situation, then you know just how, how stifling it can feel, how how much like internal dissonance that can create, even depression, I think, over a long period of time. This morning, we're going to be primarily looking at the passage from the book of Amos. We'll really just be focusing on verses 10 to 15. Perhaps you don't imagine yourself a prophet or even the child of a prophet, but from time to time, you will find yourself in a prophetic position compelled to stand for your convictions in a world that rejects your values. In order to fill this role with courage and integrity, we need to be grounded in something that is more than human. 
in order to live with courage and integrity, we need to understand our calling in Christ. The first thing that we need to see in this passage is that our calling in the Lord exposes us to hostility and threats. So look at verses 10 to 13. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. And then in verse 11, he says, For thus Amos has said, and then in verse 12, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah. Eat your bread there. Prophesy there, but never again. Prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary. This is the temple of the kingdom. In order to understand what's going on in this passage, we have to understand a little bit about Amos' world. So it's 750 years before Christ. King David has already been dead for 200 years, and the kingdom that David built has been split in half through civil war. There's a northern kingdom, which confusingly is called Israel, and there's a southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Now, by and large, the kings and the people in the northern kingdom have turned away from following the Lord. In fact, the first king of the northern kingdom actually established two false temples uh, in order to compete with the true temple that was in Jerusalem. And he did this for purely political purposes because he understood if the people of the north are constantly traveling down to the south to go worship in Jerusalem, then their hearts will be drawn back to the house of David and back to the true king. So he established one of these temples in the north in the city of Dan, and he established the other temple in the south at the city of Bethel. And he put two golden calves of all things inside these temples in order to represent the Lord according to the customs of the pagan nations around them. Now, Amos is not from the north, he's from the south. And the book introduces him actually as not a prophet, but a shepherd. Uh, and yet, throughout the book, the Lord gives him this incredible string of visions. And he brings this just scathing critique against the false worship that is happening in Israel. Uh, you can read it in chapters 3 through, three through 6. It's really, it's just this blistering, blistering, acute stuff. Amaziah, on the other hand, he is the priest of the false temple in Bethel where our story is taking place. So Amaziah's entire vocation, his livelihood, everything he does is wrapped up with promoting and supporting this religious political construct that's taking place in the north. Amos's message clearly condemns this agenda. So Amaziah responds decisively and politically in order to silence him. And it's a very strategic attack. He comes to Amos and he really pretends to be his friend, right? He starts out and he calls him seer, which is a term of respect. It acknowledges Amos's prophetic office. And he kind of couches his, his uh, ultimatum in this kind of 
listen, you know, take my advice, it's for your own good kind of, kind of frame. He says, you've got the wrong target market here. You know, we just don't want to hear that message. Go down to Judah. You know, eat your bread there. They'll, they'll welcome you there with this message. But at the same time, it's very disingenuous because he has already gone to the CEO and reported Amos for attempting to sell trade secrets, to undermine the company, for, for maybe poaching talent to start his own firm. And it doesn't even matter if any of these accusations are true at the end of the day because they've been made. And he's subtly shifting the message. Because look at what he says in verse 11. He says, for thus Amos has said. But the text that we've read, it's clear. The message is the Lord's. The visions are from the Lord. Amos is just the messenger. Isn't this what our lives feel like sometimes? Like your words are twi twisted. Your message is misconstrued and unwelcome. And occasionally people are outright hostile. You can lose your job, your friends, your scholarship, your reputation. See, our calling in the Lord invites hostility and threats. And this reality can leave us scared silent. So even now, take a second and picture a scenario in your life where you're holding yourself back, where you're masking your true beliefs and emotions, maybe out of a desire to be safe or accepted. Maybe it's with a family member, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor. Isn't it just stifling sometimes? What would it look like for you, little by little, to start to live with courage and integrity in that relationship? So as you're reflecting, you're probably starting to wonder, okay, but, but where, where does this courage and integrity flow from? Well, the passage shows us, Amos shows us, that it flows from your calling in the Lord, which gives you a deeper sense of purpose. Look at how he responds in verses 14 and 15. He says, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. The important thing to see here is that Amos is pointing back to the Lord as the source for the, for, uh, back to the Lord's purpose as the source of his actions. So when Amos says, I was not a prophet, nor was I a prophet's son, he's rejecting the idea that his message has a human origin. Prophecy was a lucrative profession in ancient Israel. Uh, and its surrounding countries. To be the son of a prophet was a way of saying that you belonged to a guild of professional prophets. You had been apprenticed to a guild like this. And professional prophets were often hired by clients to, to prophesy what the client wanted to hear. So when Amos makes this point, he's underscoring, this is the Lord's message, not mine. These are the Lord's visions, not mine. This wasn't my idea to come up here. This was the Lord's calling and the Lord's purpose. My dad grew up in uh, 
a nominally Lutheran home in Miami, Florida. And, you know, he really didn't go to church much. Uh, he didn't hear the gospel. He didn't trust Christ until he was about 17 years old. And up to that point in his life, he'd been involved in the kind of fairly hardcore juvenile delinquency that an unsupervised kid can get into in the late 60s and early 70s in Miami. I think if you'd asked him, you know, what he was living for at that moment, like what was his purpose, I think he would have said, you know, music, drugs, the life of the party, experience. And my dad's story is kind of strange because he didn't, you know, go to a Billy Graham crusade. He didn't even go to a church service. Instead, he found his father's old discarded serviceman's Bible in the garage. And he started leafing through it, and there were verses underlined in that Bible. And on every page with an underlined verse, it said, now turn to page dot, dot, dot. And so as he flipped through this Bible, it clearly laid out the gospel. And that's how the Lord called my dad. In his own words, he says this, I remember a particular day walking home and walking down my familiar street in Miami, Florida, and it seemed as if the whole world was different, as if the world was somehow more alive more vibrant, less lonely, less empty. I remember at the same time, although I was so new, I didn't know much about how I was supposed to live my life as a Christian, and I hadn't had any teaching, but I knew that I wanted to live a more noble life. I wanted to live my life somehow on a higher plane than I had been living it, with more virtue, with more love for people, with more courage for the challenges of life. It was a new way of looking at the world. If the Lord calls you, it changes the way you see the world and your place in it. It gives you a new purpose. And that deeper source of purpose is something that you can draw on when you face threats and hostility and adversity. They're not rejecting you anymore. They're rejecting the Lord. They're not rejecting your purpose. They're rejecting the Lord's purpose. Your calling in the Lord gives you a deeper source of purpose. So perhaps you're thinking now, yes, but I am certainly not a prophet, and I'm, I'm not even sure that I have the kind of calling that you're talking about. But you do. You do. Look back at the epistle reading for today. Look at some of, just listen to some of the things that the Lord is saying to you today. In love, God predestined you for adoption to himself as children through Jesus Christ. You have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses. You have obtained an inheritance sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Lord chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. If you know Christ, your calling not only gives you a deeper sense of purpose, but it gives you the deepest sense of value. 
Maybe some of you saw a film called Lion that came out maybe two years ago. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. And don't worry, no spoilers here. Uh, but it's the story of two Indian boys who are adopted by an Australian couple when they're about five or six years old. Uh, and it's a brutally difficult adoption as these boys are taken out of a life of abuse and neglect and poverty and brought to a completely different country and culture that they're now asked to call home. And, man, as you watch this film, your heart just breaks for the boys and for their parents as they struggle for years with uh, mental illness and extreme self-destructive behavior and the need to kind of fight off resentment at every turn. And late in the film, when the main character, Saru, is on kind of this personal life-or-death quest to find himself, he has this conversation with his mom. Saru looks at his mom and says, I'm sorry that you couldn't have your own kids. She says, what? He goes on. We, we just weren't blank pages, were we? Like your own children would have been. You weren't just adopting us. You were adopting our past as well. And his mom just stares back at him with this just look of kind of fierce determination. She says, I could have had my own kids. We chose you. We wanted the two of you. That's what we wanted. We wanted the two of you in our lives. We chose you to take a child that's suffering like you boys were and give you a chance in the world. That's something. We chose you. God could have had whatever kind of children he wanted. Ephesians 1 is telling you this morning that he chose you, that he called you. Even though you're a broken, messy human being, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, set his love on you before the beginning of the world. He parted the space-time continuum and looked down through the centuries and he saw you and your mess and your struggle and he wrapped his love around you through the death of his son Jesus Christ. You are called. If you know Christ, you have the deepest imaginable sense of purpose and value and that gives you the courage and integrity to live your life in this world as we close I just want to leave you with one image with like a thought experiment to take with you as you go will you let your calling in Christ change the way you view the world last Friday night my small group went to the Minneapolis Institute of Art and we had this beautiful experience of being able to take some time to engage prayerfully with the works of art that were there. And unexpectedly, I ended up standing in front of a painting called The Denial of St. Peter. 
And it's a early 17th century Dutch painting, so kind of like a Rembrandt, you know, it's got these just dark, rich, powerful colors and warm tones. And it shows Peter, the Apostle Peter, on that morning, that early morning 2,000 years ago, when confronted by the soldiers and by that servant girl, he caved, he conformed, he denied Christ, denied knowing him at all three times. And if you look at the painting, you know, Peter is, Peter looks startled, almost like he's reeling back and he's surrounded by these guards in armor and the servant girl is reaching out and holding on to his cloak. But as I sat and like looked deeper and just sat with this painting, I looked deep into the darkness and I saw the expressions on the faces of the soldiers and I realized that there was not a hint of hostility in this painting. Not a hint. Just soft smiles and warm eyes. And the servant girl kind of leaning forward, reaching out expectantly, kind of hanging on to Peter. It was as if every person in the painting was rooting for Peter, hoping that he knew Christ eagerly desiring to hear from one who had known the Lord personally. You are the redeemed saints. You have a glorious eternal calling, won by Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit. That calling gives you the power to live with courage and integrity. Sure, most of the time, the world may respond with hostility and threats. But maybe, just maybe, if you're brave, if you have eyes to see it, they're reaching out, longing to hear a word from the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, just for the work of the prophet Amos nearly 3,000 years ago that he went north and proclaimed your word faithfully in a time and a place where uh, there was no desire to hear the message. Father, I pray that his example and our calling in Christ would transform our hearts even today. That you would just give us a deep sense of our purpose and our value and our worth wherever you've placed us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.